Hello, and welcome to Prophetic Voices, Preaching and Teaching Beloved Community, a podcast from the Episcopal Church's Office of Reconciliation, Justice, and Creation Care, where we explore the season and the lectionary through the lens of social justice. I'm your host, Reverend Shaniqua, Staff Officer for Racial Reconciliation, and I'm so glad you could join us. In this episode of Prophetic Voices, we'll be discussing Palm or Passion Sunday. Our prophetic guests this week are the Reverend Jazzy Bostock, who is a priest in the Diocese of Hawaii serving St. John the Baptist Episcopal Church and Malohia Lutheran Church, both on the west side of Oahu. And the Reverend Winnie Varghese, who is the rector of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Atlanta, Georgia. She has served in multiple churchwide roles, including executive council and as voting secretary of general convention. And last but not least, the Reverend Jean Menard, who is originally from Duluth, Minnesota and grew up in a suburb of St. Paul, Minnesota. She is back in the Midwest now and currently serves as rector of Grace Episcopal Church in Huron, South Dakota, which incidentally is the home of the world's largest ringneck pheasant. Welcome, friends. So what's important to keep in mind this year during Lent and Holy Week? This is too polite a group, but I can already tell. We're all worried about talking over each other. (laughs) That wasn't one of the questions, so I didn't think about that. Well, you know, my first thought, I'll just start. We didn't get to do this last year. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you all did. We didn't get to do this in person last year. So was it two years for you then? Yeah. Yeah. 2020 and 2021. Yeah. We got back together in the middle of 2020 because we're so small and we were very careful. But that first Easter was, you know, we were in the middle of this and we didn't know what was going on. And we're, you know, proclaiming the gospel of the resurrection of the risen Christ. And and it's crazy. People are dying and, and nobody knows, you know, what the future is going to hold. It was, and it feel, still feels that way sometimes. I mean, it really, it feels like we're living in such a tenuous time. Um, and in some ways, the, the Palm Sunday sort of epitomizes that because you have this wonderful procession and everybody's, yay, Jesus, yay. And then at the end of it, it's like, crucify him, crucify him, same people. And it's it's like things can turn on a dime, it seems, sometimes. Yeah, when you asked that question, I was just thinking of the drama of Holy Week. Like, I think there's something in sort of the liturgy of Palm Sunday, of if you do the Stations of the Cross, I always find it there as well. Um, and even on Easter Sunday, but by Easter, I feel like you're kind of, you're through the rough stuff and you're into the high of it. Um, But there's something about that, like public liturgical drama, which feels heavier this year, or maybe feels more like a release um, because there has been so much death, right? Mm. In our world, in our communities and families that belong to our church and extended families. Like there has been a lot of, Um, reminder of mortality. Like sometimes as we come up to Ash Wednesday, I feel like, oh, I really am in need of this reminder this year. And the last couple of years, I felt like I I don't need to be reminded that I'm dust. (laughs) Like I'm well aware I'm dust. And, uh, you know, my next breath is as close to me as somebody else's air particles or whatever, right? That's that may or may not be infected. Um, And so there's something that feels that kind of public drama that feels much more um, important or releasing or sort of being able to name just that loss and that mortality and walk through the way that only Holy Week lets us walk through that um, sort of funeral dirge um, before getting to that beautiful resurrection and promise of life. That's interesting. I I mean, I I think I'm in a similar place, but I've never had to think about this before because frankly, I'm more of a parade person than a death person. So how are you, how are you going to approach that procession? (laughs) Well, so, I mean, I actually think for me, Palm Sunday is always the most awkward of 
all of the Holy Week stuff. I I really like the Stations of the Cross and Good Friday. Um, but the sort of hold a palm and walk through the parking lot, like always makes me just inwardly cringe. No one is like fully all in on it. Um, but I, so I guess being able to move around, we did meet last year, but it was, you know, masked and kind of nervous about moving around too much in the space together and touching too many surfaces, right? Um, and so I think there's a little bit more freedom now just with the knowledge that we have of if you're masked and outside, you're really fairly safe. So the sort of freedom of physical movement, I think, really helps to mm. play out the liturgy, but also maybe just being able to like stay in it a little bit. I think it's really hard to do to like leave church in that passion Sunday, you know, when you do Palm Passion and you like leave, you go out on crucify him. It's not like going out on a blessing mm. or a dismissal, right? It's, it's heavy and harsh. Um, but in certain ways, I think pastorally, it might also be meeting people where they are. And I don't often um, feel like that. I also tend to be more parady and, uh, new life and the joyful. But I think that in sort of avoiding what's hard, sometimes you make it more challenging. And so just in embracing this is where we are, not just in our Christian walk um, and in the way that we mark time liturgically, but also maybe in our community and the way we mark time, have marked time with COVID, right? Maybe we are in passion Sunday moment. In the Orthodox tradition, they do a lot of processing around the church during like there's the Palm Sunday and then they do it on Good Friday and everybody walks under this thing called the Epitaphios and the, like it's really um, beautiful and I always think about that as in some ways that's sort of an evangelical tool in some ways too. I've seen a couple of times where people have actually just come in off the street during those processions and walked into the church curious about what's going on. I always like to get things when I went to church, like getting a palm to walk around with. And just, I remember that being cool. And those were things that were like from another place because we don't have them growing in <laughs> in rural South Dakota on the reservation. And they were like these cool big leaves that we would get. I never thought leaves could get so big. Anyway, I just thought that was kind of neat. <laughs> Where do you guys see yourselves in in the story of the, of the passion? I've always um, felt really uncomfortable with being the crowd in the passion narrative. Um, you know, I, I, I would, you know, everybody be all getting into it, crucify him. And I'd be like, you know, pretend I'm not here. Cause it just felt so awful. It felt, and I understand that it's meant to make you feel awful to, to feel like we are the, we are the crowd that crucifies Jesus. And at the same point, it, once you get to Easter, you realize that that same crowd is the crowd that Jesus is saving. And we are the same crowd that Jesus is saving. But it's always the end of Palm Sunday liturgy is always a little bit uncomfortable and or maybe a lot uncomfortable, especially with the way it starts. You know, it's processing around and waving palms and you know all the all the fun things although we don't wave the palms because they get turned into tiny little palm crosses tradition trumps everything apparently <laughs> i definitely feel part of the crowd and definitely feel uncomfortable with that it's interesting i um so i've lived in a couple of different parts of the country my parents are from india and we're you know from places where palms grow first and so we Frankly, we really identify with the story. It makes a lot of sense, right? And, you, and as you know, there's some some scholarship. Not you know, not everybody. Some scholars say that that crowd that would have been along the sidewalk, you know, on the the street welcoming Jesus on it, you know, as the the meek king, would have been a slightly different group of people that were than that were mm. um, at the trial. Um, that would have just been a, a different different audience. Um, and I have to say those political readings really resonate deeply with me. And I come from processing people. My family, my parents are Orthodox. 
um, and we're Indian Orthodox. Like Indians do a religious procession like nobody else. Like we, this is our area. And nice. you, you throw in some Orthodox Christianity and like it, it is some serious business. Like there's drums and there's fire. It's a, it's a whole thing. And I love it. And the Protestant um, reforms that came to our part of India, one of the things they removed were processions. Oh, no. Um, so the Protestants were like, wah, wah. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> and like my heart <laughs> loves the procession in Dallas, Texas, on the side. I don't care. Like, I love it. In Manhattan, a blast to walk through, you know, in the morning and annoy people with our trombones and palm leaves. And so I, I have to admit, I love the spectacle, but I think I love the spectacle because I, I don't come from places where I would have to worry that people think that what we're doing is hateful or exclusive or judging mm. of them. And part of that is, is where my family comes from. Like in, in, in India, we're, we're a very small minority of a religion. There are all kinds of other religions. And there, there's, you know, there's Hindus and Muslims in our community, mostly Hindu in our neighborhoods. Um, and we're just separate. So we do their festivals, they do our festivals, which is different than in our culture, in, in our context where I think we worry and, and Episcopalians in our culture of kind of staying in our lane so that we don't cause offense or um, whatever it is, whatever it is that we're doing. I feel sometimes like a like I'm from another country and this is supposed to be a really big public spectacle. Um, mm. And I and I know in my some of my cousins, their their churches, they line up in the parking lot in Garland or Dallas, Texas. And they're, you know, like that's a hundred women in saris that match and 300 children and wow. a whole bunch of Indian guys and the priest with the oh. beards. And, you know, and I just look at that and I worry about racism. I'm like, I hope everyone's going to be okay. But they've done this their whole lives at four o'clock in the morning, you know, on Easter day. So I just love the spectacle. And part of the logic of that spectacle and that story of Palm Sunday, right, is that Jesus comes in, that that, that proclamation of the Messiah is is in defiance of the powers that be at the time. And it's not theoretical. It's very concrete. And people know, and, and people respond to Jesus because there is hope. I, that part, that person on the street, I, I resonate so deeply with that, that idea that, that we, and especially in this time where when we are out on the streets and there's so many people out on the streets and stand, you know, kind of standing on the streets in response to the powers that be, um, that there is this hope that is our Christian hope that the world can be different than it is. I think that's a really interesting point about hope because I, I feel like hope sort of got kicked in the slat this past couple of years, you know, it's, it's like people were thinking, are we all going to die? Is this, is this the end of the world or, or is my, you know, are my parents going to die because they're elderly or are my kids going to die because nobody knows how it affects kids? I mean, it's just when you're faced with something that's that sort of cataclysmic, it's, it's easy to, to sort of see hope slip away. And I think that's kind of where we come in to, to remind people that not just sort of in the amorphous future of the kingdom of God, but right now hope is still alive and we need to, and we need to encourage people to hold on to that. I hear that a lot or that hope in Psalm 118 that give thanks to the Lord, his mercy endures forever there you have all that peace. And I'm always wondering how people use that psalm in the liturgy. Some people I've heard read it while people are walking. Other people, there's a song that people always sing as they walk around. And I'm wondering, comparing that Psalm 118 then with Psalm 31, which is this like full of lament. And I, as I was reading that this time, I was like, that really stood out for me this year. I was just like, oh my gosh, that is rough. Where do you see us needing to lament across our church? And has there ever been a time when you felt like that broken pot or in that space of lament that the psalmist describes? In my parish, we went through a pretty rough patch. Um, it, it, I mean, they were, I don't want to get too detailed, but it was bad, bad, bad. And I remember going home one day and saying, I think they broke me. I think I'm broken. And I mean, that was like the lowest. And then that same summer, I went to a preaching workshop and the whole thing was about forgiveness and preaching forgiveness. But I didn't, I don't think I learned anything about preaching there, but I learned a lot about forgiveness. And I realized 
if something bad has happened, you have to lament. You have to in order to get past it. You can't just shove it down. Minnesotans are really good at shoving all the emotions into a little square box somewhere. And South Dakotans too. You have to, it's like you have to have Good Friday in order to have Easter. There's there's no point to Easter without Good Friday in, in some ways. I mean, Easter is Easter and wonderful, but so I had this, I had, I had this summer of forgiveness and I was able to translate that into forgiveness of the people who had been horrible to me. And it actually worked. <laughs> I mean, it was, it, it repaired the relationship. And so I think, but without, without going through the pain that, and, and, and dealing with it and analyzing it and, and living through it, you can't get to that point. It just gnaws at you. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. Um, just resonates this year, doesn't it? Yes. You know, I don't like, I feel like Psalm 31 does some work for us that we need to do. And I am struck by this. A very different side of these readings um, are, are resonant for me than usual. With many of these, I, you know, I'm, for my life is wasted with grief. I mean, I don't know how many funerals and deaths you all have had, but um, they're, they're endless, right? And hmm. it's, you kind of brace yourself for the next message. It's easy, easy connection and probably words we all need that meet us exactly where we are this year. Hmm. I think that's at the very end, you'll say what, you know, how we preach on this or talk about this. And I think that's actually a really good place to talk about, to, to preach about is, is the, the need to, to experience lament as a community. Yeah. I often think, I mean, Palm Passion Sunday is such a kind of starts with a high high and ends with a low low but i think more and more and maybe coming into sharper focus because of this last year is this kind of tandemness in which joy and grief mm. um, coexist right as sort of twins and i think in black and white thinking, I often want something to be uncomplicated, right? Uncomplicated joy or uncomplicated grief. <laughs> um, and that's just not, that's not unfortunately how um, God designed us or how life seems to work. And so I think putting those two Psalms in conversation with one another, I often think Palm Sunday is like you start in one place and you finish in another place. And I'm just feeling, I guess, in my own self, how much of that sort of gratitude and lament, right? Gratitude and trouble. Gratitude that we've survived, that we're resilient, that, I mean, things haven't been as bad as they could have been um, in the kind of most apocalyptic sense. And then this deep lament that we are not um, loving one another as we ought, and we are not living in community as we ought, and that we have lost and so many people and so many experiences and, you know, all of these kind of losses coexist. I think of how many people I've heard tell me that Yes, working from home has been an adjustment, but that also it's given them a lot of time with their families back or that there's been some gratitude and some joy, like deep, true joy in the time that people have had, right? Because all of the kids' stuff is canceled and, and there was this kind of opportunity to reconnect. And yet how horrifying it can feel to call a global pandemic an opportunity or something to be grateful for, right? So so this kind of, these two Psalms, which seem on first glance at such opposite emotional experiences, I think are so much more, like they work together and, and live together in tandem in a way that they maybe haven't always for me, but I just, I mm. see the way that they fit our experience my experience. I was thinking about like in some ways being thankful and uh, I mean it's a horrible reason but 
like one of the things I think Indians, and by that I mean indigenous uh, to North America Indians versus Winnie, you're kind of Indians. <laughs> one thing that we do really well is grief and funerals. And if you've been to a native place, like there's like, it's so oh. cathartic and people are just out there with the emotions. There isn't like this stoicness that people, you know, people always think of Indians as being stoic, but like there's grief and it's tears and it's real and it's just there. And I think we have like, there's so much that we like the days of wake and the funeral and all of the different ceremonies that we do as those things are going on. And I think, and the children aren't shielded from that. It's right there. And so I think in this time of COVID, when we've had like our community has been hit really hard by that and we've had more death than maybe we typically do, but it's like, we, we, we are there, we know what to do. And it's not like this, this thing that's foreign to us. And I think Holy Week is going to hit differently this year, or at least it comes to bring us back to that. And it's very tangible then in that sense. That's kind of what I was thinking about and how, how that joy and that lament are there. Like when you're at the funeral, people are telling jokes about the people who died, telling funny stories about them. I, I don't even want to know the funny stories people are going to say when I die at my funeral, <laughs> but I'm sure there's going to be plenty of them. Yeah. And so, I mean, like there's this whole piece and, and in some ways, yes, you're grieving, but also in some ways it's very much a celebration. Well, and that's how our, Episcopal um, burial liturgy is too. It's very celebratory. And I've, I've been told that I give a good funeral because I, I believe in letting people have whatever emotions they have, whether it be laughing or crying or laughing through their tears or crying through their laughter or whatever. You know, I'm not, I think that that needs to be celebrated too that people are celebrating the person who is gone, but they're also celebrating the fact that they're there. And I, I think I, I've never been to a Lakota funeral, but I have heard about a lot about them. And it seems like that aspect of it is, is front and center, just, you know, joy at being together at being, you know, at having known the relative that is, made their journey and eating lots and lots of fried chicken. <laughs> Very traditional fried chicken. <laughs> Very traditional. <laughs> one of the things that I don't mean to be doing all the talking, but one of the things that when Jazzy was talking about the, the two Psalms, I had this image of, I think it's called a dovetail joint where you have, there's a cutout of one shape and then there's a, protrusion of another shape and they fit together and it's a very strong joint and it's stronger than if it were just one or the other of the pieces and 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 that's that was the image that came to my mind talking about these two psalms that they're really stronger together than they are each of them apart preaching notes talk about dovetail joints Was there ever a time, I know in that one it talks about, in Psalm 31, it talks about rescuing you from the hand of your enemies or from those who persecute you. Was there ever a time when you felt like God rescued you from the hand of your oppressor? Or if not, where is something that you would like to be rescued from? What might that look like? We're thinking about Palm Sunday and Passion Sunday. To to my mind, one of the things to consider with these readings is, you know, Holy Week is is very much that a human body, a person dies, right? A person who had a mom and that mm. people loved and had a ministry and those things. But also we're talking about the Christ, right? So, um, and and it's not just that a person died, right? And so we're, we're talking about this larger thing that I think is also important to kind of engage in. It is important to engage. And part of that for me and those, what, what's happening on, Palm Sunday and Passion Sunday is we're looking at the world as it is and what what it would take for there to be human flourishing in this world and the flourishing of creation. And so to my mind, I, I can't really come up with a like God has God God does not reveal God's self to me in those ways where like when you were in a lot of trouble and now look at that. I got you. You know, like that hasn't been my story. But a huge mm-hmm. part of my story and my experience of faith is that the work of my own liberation of my my figuring out my flourishing my community's flourishings my understanding of even what my community is um is is the is the work of faith like that is how you know this is the whole journey for me right so 
So Jesus coming up against the powers of this world and of coming up against evil um, and, um, and the brutality of that and being a force of resistance of, to that is that's, that's, that's very real to me and resonates with me every time I find, every time I think in the text, we just got, every time I approach the pulpit thinking, right, we got to go a little lighter this week because there's just too much sadness. Every time I've done it, my whole, like, 20 years in, I should know. And then you look at the readings, you're like, oh, yeah, not this week, right? Because <laughs> it's, it's just, it's so centered on human flourishing. And there are always these powers that resist human flourishing. And it's our work, right, to proclaim that and to live in it and to, to find where, where we ourselves are, are in those struggles. Um, I find it so liberating. And, um, and it feels to me like it is the work of my own salvation that I'm trying to do. And I'm trying to invite others into theirs. Um, and maybe that's my version of, of God showing up is every time I think we're going to do something a little different, like I have some needs this week to be a little, to, um, to be a little softer. Um, God shows up and asks me to do something different, real clear mm. and in the lectionary, that something different. One of the big changes that I went, that happened to me during the whole COVID thing, and especially when we were closed. And so we were just broadcasting on Facebook and um, physically I couldn't be at the pulpit. And ordinarily my preaching style is totally scripted. So I don't wander into rabbit holes and lose people. And, um, but I had to, I had to abandon that because I, I couldn't have, uh, I couldn't be at the pulpit. So I had, because of the, where the camera was. And so I started preaching extemporaneously. And first of all, I got huge amounts of feedback about how much people liked it, but also it freed me to do what you were saying when you were the, the text, God's saying things. And sometimes it isn't what I wrote down, you know, in my perfect script and being freed to just be open to the spirit, to say the things that God feels the people need to hear that day has been a, a, one of the gratitude aspects of this whole Michigash. I resonate, Winnie, with what you said about, you know, it's not as if God says, okay, you're in trouble. So now you're out of trouble and look at that. I rescued you. Cause I also I don't feel like I can point to any one experience and go like, oh, that, like right there is where God rescued me. But there is this, maybe it's that 2020 hindsight or how we rewrite our narratives once we've lived them. I can look back and see times when I have been in trouble, um, times when I felt like, okay, this is just a bad experience. I'm thinking of particularly a couple of internships I had that were just not set up for my flourishing in many, many ways. Um, and it wasn't that God plucked me up and rescued me like some kind of divine hand from the sky, massive hand from the sky, <laughs> but that my mom and my dad um, said, you know, it's okay to come home, like just come home. And, and then it was me, right? Then it was my decision to say like, okay, now I'm done. Like, this is enough. I've endured enough. I've proven enough to myself or to anyone who I think I need to prove something to that I can stay and stick it out and be strong and, um, and going home. But I, I don't, I do think there's an aspect of God in that. I think, you know, in those circumstances, my mom and dad were people who wanted to see my flourishing, right? Who reminded me like, that's what God wants for you too. You don't have to stay in something that's hard and that you're just banging heads or that you're square peg round hole or whatever the metaphor is that you want to use um, that equals like bad situation, right? <laughs> but that there is a safety net and a rescuing. And I think in that safety net, what created it more than anything else is love, right? Mm. And that's what God's safety net looks like is anything that is a safety net of love, I think is a manifestation of God. Let me 
move on to the big long gospel and and i think there's like two options there's like a super long one and a sort of long one in luke and it there's just covers so many things there's like the last supper and foreshadowing and the passion and the forgiven criminal and the centurion's conversion and burial and there's all these pieces and i I guess that's a lot of different things you could preach on, but I'm always like wondering like what stands out for you or what is the piece that sort of calls to you when you think about all those different pieces? For me, I sometimes think about the forgiven criminal because I think I always think about there's times where I've done bad things and how, you know, I, it's okay to ask for forgiveness and how I've been forgiven so many times for things that I've, that I've done. It's another non-answer to your question, but um, I, every year when I read these, every single year, since this happened, I remember one man at uh, St. Albans in Westwood who during the Passion reading, and I can't remember now how I figured it out, but on the, during the Palm Sunday Passion reading, he would sit outside the church on a stone bench and cry. Um, and I I was only there a couple of years, so I guess one of those readings, I must have somehow gotten outside or something, or I, at some point I found him out there and I asked him about it, and he said, I've never been able to stay inside for that reading. And he had, you know, he had been in World War II, like he was of that generation and like this self-made GI Bill guy, you know, living in Bel Air. And he would just sit on that bench and weep. And he came every year and his wife was inside. I think of him every year that that people bring so much of themselves to this story mm. and they know it and it's tied into their own experiences in ways that we can't begin to imagine. And it's um, so profound. I my for me, my caution is always I for myself is to not um, I feel very wary of or worried that I will oversimplify or over theologize something that already is so deeply embedded and meaningful and historic in people's lives. Um, and in my mind, I think I see the whole congregation as him, that that this is what's happening. And he was like he was like a gruff guy. Like he was mm-hmm. he's kind of a piece of work the rest of the year, mm-hmm. you know? Anyway, that's that's what I that's what I carry with me. That's a really beautiful story. I mean, the an illustration of how the gospel touches people's in, people in ways that we can't even sometimes imagine. You know, whatever in his life that brought him to that point where he couldn't hear about the passion without weeping, it just, it's kind of indicative of how transcendent those words are to people. They, they, they cut through the intellect, even though we theologize, but but the words still cut through our intellect and go right into our emotional core. I think this year, the part that's standing out to me is that last part about Joseph of Arimathea, who gives up his tomb for Christ. And maybe that's because burials and funerals mm. have been so different in this year. I don't know if any of you have done drive-by funerals. I've done a couple and they're super strange. There's, I mean, and there's like, you can't have the physical contact that I think of as being so part of funeral. And so this part of the burial, right, of Joseph laying down linen cloth and wrapping the body and anointing it with spices this like very this last time you get to touch Jesus right touch the Christ um who is Winnie as you were saying both the Christ and just a body just a person um is striking me I think kind of the the ways that people have had to adjust their expectations mm. of laying their loved ones to rest and um, maybe not have that tenderness of open caskets, which for mm-hmm. um, the community that I serve is really important, um, which I was surprised by. But it's that last time in Hawaiian tradition, the last breath that you exhale is a gift or like a blessing like something Mm. somebody else is supposed to receive it Mm. i'm reminded of the first person who died in south dakota was from huron and um lived in huron died in huron and her whole their whole family was infected with covid and um i remember talking to her husband um afterwards 
quite a long time afterwards, and he said that the inability to connect with people was in some ways the hardest part. He said he remembered her, they were all in quarantine and her best friend came up and lay down on their front porch and sobbed. And he was inside because he couldn't, they couldn't interact. But I, she, she had no way of physically expressing her grief except to lay down on their porch and cry. And um, that really struck me because of the way we, we often have expectations about funerals mm-hmm. that have been just thrown to the wind this past couple of years. Yeah, I think there've been a lot of changes that people have had to make, you know, as a, and just being flexible, like just doing the committal outside and, you know, like sort of not doing the whole funeral service. I know we did that quite for quite a while in South Dakota. That idea of the of someone receiving the last breath is can you imagine receive like the last breath of Jesus? What mm. a, in this time when breath is the thing that that infects it's almost like we've got to re-sanctify the breath at some point right? mm-hmm. we hope so profound mm-hmm. yeah. especially with all of the you know things about breath in the bio you know you've got like the 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 breath of god blowing into the life into you know adam and eve and just all of those things and how that's a really wow i'm thinking of my friends and relatives who've had to bury their parents mostly in my you know that i know um without touching them um, because of this time. And same, I, we come from a community where you you wash your parents' body. You know, like you, it's really important that you touch that body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my guess would be that this Holy Week, a lot of our, like the grief of years, um, like that guy, right, um, will be with us. One of the things that I think uh, we do, and I can't remember when we do it at the church that I'm serving right now or one of the ones I'm helping at, they read this letter or essay or something to try and prevent the anti-Semitism that comes up sometimes during Holy Week. And it's like, talks about, you know, like the Jews that are, that way they say the Jews, that's this group of people. And that was at this time and it's not Jewish people in general. And, you know, um, cause sometimes I think we forget that Jesus was a Jew and not a Christian <laughs> and that whole piece. And that's just kind of left me thinking, what are some things that maybe we need to think about as we're doing some of this, uh, as we're thinking about the Holy Week and Palm Sunday and how these readings can affect, maybe have unintended consequences. Yeah, I think it's really important to know our history, right? That Holy Week and Holy Week was the most dangerous time to be a Jew in Western Europe mm. and in Eastern Europe, in Europe, period. That's just history, like violence. It's not like the theoretical and about inclusive language, frankly, right? That violence was enacted because of the public reading of these texts. That was the emotion that um, was generated. So I think that's just really important for us to know and to talk about because it's part of what we all inherit. And I think, and, right, it's a big and, is this is, this, the the Bible, until we get to certain letters of Paul, is really a story happening among Jewish mm-hmm. people. That's, that this is, a, this is internal, we are the outsiders, but we've got to do a lot of framing mm-hmm. and talking. We've got to say that, you know, for, because people just don't experience it that way, don't hear it that way, and we have a pretty rough history. But I, I don't, I don't actually think it's enough just to change the words and not talk about that. People don't know why. It's not enough to say that we don't want to. It's not just that we don't want to cause offense. It's that there's a brutal history attached to the public proclamation of these readings through our liturgies, and I think we have to name that. I think it's really important, and I think it's actually really important not to kind of whitewash mm-hmm. that um, by just changing the words and not really getting into why, if, if, if that's what you're going to do. I've never been anywhere where we change the words. We talk about what those words mean. I don't think I've ever been anywhere where they change the words. What do they change them to? Where it says the Jew, it can, it can sound like, if you read that, and I, I was at a place where there was a, a school, and Jewish kids in that school were horrified when they heard the Passion Story because it sounded like, and it does say that, basically that Jewish people killed mm-hmm. Jesus. Is what It says the Jews said right who says crucify him right and so the changes i've seen are to judeans so that it becomes regional i've also seen it change to the people um to kind of neutralize it 
they're all valid translations, actually, though it, it does say, you know, it says mm-hmm. that that's all it's valid, either contextually or literally. Right. So and I, and I think it all makes sense. But I, I actually think it's important for us to know. I mean, I'm going to tell you, Jews know that history. So Christians need to know that mm-hmm. history. Yeah. I had, when I was in seminary, my Greek professor told us, and this, this kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. And I don't, I don't remember where the passage, probably in John, and it's, it's often translated as the Jews, comma, who crucified Jesus, comma. But he pointed out in Greek, there are no commas. So it could be the Jews who crucified Jesus, the specific small group of Jews who crucified Jesus, not the whole race. And I remember just being gobsmacked by that. You know, it's like, yeah, you know, who put those commas in there? And, and, you know, you know, there was an agenda behind those commas. I agree that it's, it's important to contextualize it like that so that people understand that it's not just something that happened 2000 years ago that it's it's been ongoing and ongoing today wasn't there just another um attack of a synagogue not you know this past couple of weeks ago i preach on that sometimes on good friday i talk about like the because this is actually a good example of how like right then all the the whole community that was there gathered started yelling crucify him and that mob mentality came out and that should be a warning to all of us right that that we should be careful of mob mentality and how that can harm others and but that's exactly what then we've been committed the same thing right even though we've heard that then we've committed that mob mentality both you know as christian people but then also just in other ways i mean i can't remember the person's name was back in the day uh, i think rodney king and then i remember them pulling a semi driver out after rodney king and he just happened to be there and this is slightly different from the kind of contextualization of of the um gospel and of those words but it strikes me that the last sentence in that gospel is on the sabbath they rested according to the commandment and just from a pastoral kind of standpoint, mm-hmm. grief takes such a toll on the body and on the mind and on the spirit that like really, I mean, if I could, I tell all of my um, congregants to take the week off and just like be with Jesus, right? That is not how, I mean, that is such the privilege of, of my job and um, of this particular call into priesthood that I get to do that, right? I don't have to sort of also show up to a nine to five and like pretend that I'm okay. Because <laughs> most of the time, honestly, I'm not during Holy Week. I'm like not okay. Um, and it's not because I have, you know, 700 services. That's obviously not like making me feel the best, but it's, it's because of the intensity of the passion story, um, the deep wailing of the crucify him, right? And the conviction that that is of my own fickle heart um, and of the ways in which all of us crucify Jesus all the time, right? Um, With oil lines and not protecting our water sources and all all kinds of things. And so I think like in a pastoral way, I just really want my people to be aware of that toll and to like take it as easy as they possibly can after church on Sunday to do those restful things, which are actually going to be life-giving and Sabbath-finding, right? That that even in the midst of this deep grief, even in the Good Friday when Jesus was not physically in the world anymore and when the disciples didn't know where to turn or what to do, they had this practice of Sabbath to rely on. And that grounded them, I think, in some way. And that even in kind of turmoil, like routine Mm. can be really stabilizing and important. And so, yeah, just that rest and that Sabbath and kind of allowing the grief to be as deep as it is and to express it how it is. And then like 
go home and take a nap, you know, <laughs> take it easy, drink a glass of water, like do those things which are caring for, I hate the word self-care, but caring for your soul in what can be a really difficult liturgy and difficult gospel to bear witness to or to participate in um, if that's what, you know, how your community does that liturgy. It's interesting. And because of COVID, I think the language of trauma has kind of pervaded the culture in a way that it, you know, it wasn't there before everywhere and of kind of uh, reinscribing trauma or reintroducing trauma. I think it's a little bit of what you're describing, right? Of just the, that, that we almost, because um, I agree with you, I find it devastating to walk through Holy Week. And it's a really unproductive week to do other things, frankly. You know, it's not a, not a good week for a vestry meeting. <laughs> but we do. Like, we do these services, and then people go back into the world, right? And we're sort of, I mean, trauma might be too big a word, but I don't know right now if it is, right? The, the level of pain we all have access to. Um, and we're, we're more aware, I am more aware now than I have been in the past of what it means to be reintroduced to that and to hear those words and and my own capacity to bounce back and keep moving and go to the, you know, to the brunch. Um, I just, I don't have, I don't have that bandwidth anymore. And I'm, mm. I say me, cause I'm, I bet that's everybody. And we're about to guide people through such a difficult week emotionally when we know we have so much less capacity to, to cover, um, or to play off or compartmentalize. Like we're, we're, we are feeling our feelings. Is it like Rabbi Heschel, I think that says Sabbath is the day that in our rest, we might catch a glimpse of the kingdom of God, mm. you know, that, that there's a purpose for that rest. And I wonder what that glimpse is in a holy week, but we don't, we don't get it if we don't rest. I think that that is, is so true that the trauma is so close to us now and, and, and close to everybody. It's, there's nobody who hasn't been affected by it. And I don't, I don't remember last Easter or or Palm Sunday, I it's it's I don't remember it. And I think that's a big part of it. It's almost like it's almost like traumatic amnesia. And because we were just inundated by this by this sadness and by this you know worry and in in some cases sickness that that I think we we have no it's hard to find a place to rest. I mean, you almost have to shut everything off and close yourself in a dark room. I I ha I came down with COVID in October and I wasn't sick, but I had to quarantine. Except that I was a little bored. That was kind of nice. I I couldn't go to we had to cancel our vestry meeting because I had COVID. We canceled church because I, we didn't know who had been exposed. And I sat at home in my rocking chair and listened and, uh, you know, listened to music and read books and played with my cats. And it, it, it was weirdly restful considering I had, you know, what had been for some people a life-threatening disease. So I think I, for me, I want to pay more attention to that this year so that I can remember Easter next year and remember, you know, have, have a high that isn't shadowed and, and, and covered over by grief. But how does your social location, do you think, inform your reading of this? I always notice that like, you know, uh, two different people could read the same passage and can get attached to two different, totally different places, depending on where they're coming from. And I think maybe as, people of privilege, we might attach ourselves to the coming into do some triumphantly portion of the liturgy versus, you know, the passion part of it. Or maybe, you know, if you feel like this year has just been rough for everybody, maybe everybody's coming into that. But how, how do you, how does that work for you? I really identify with what, um, Winnie, you said earlier about the political statement that is being made when Jesus rides in and people call him the Messiah. And that kind of marching in the streets resistance um, that you can be swept into, but that is also like just speaking a deep truth that you know in your hearts. In the community that I live in on the West Side, there's largely Native Hawaiian, largely economically depressed. And so I see more sort of civic engagement in the community that I serve now 
than I did when I was serving privileged parishes in this urban center of Honolulu. Because like the dump, the landfill is on our side, ag land is being taken over for solar system, uh, photovoltaic solar panel systems to serve central Oahu. Right now there's um, some really big controversies and issues with fuel tanks that the Navy has at Red Hill that are leaking into our aquifer system. And so the water that is from our aquifer is not coming into our community, but is being pumped into central Oahu to serve the people who are in the urban center. And we are getting a lot of the fuel leaked, fuel compromised water from the Navy. So there is more of an acute understanding of political mm. realities and political oppression in a community that is on that has the short end of the stick, right? That has been shortchanged and oppressed in many ways, um, and I see that a lot in the kind of environmental advocacy that right now looks a lot like as you drive in, as you drive along Farrington Highway, which is the one road into, you know, one road in, one road out of how you can get out to the west side, you see a lot of yards that have banners in them that are saying, you know, no more landfill, no more PV, whatever it is, right? There's a lot of, I stand with Mauna Kea, right? There's a lot of political activism in that way. And it's not necessarily marching at the Capitol. And it's not submitting testimony but when you're in a place that is not you have to rely on the hope that something new is coming you have to mm. believe that you can change something in terms of social location i see that connection between um sort of the messiah needing to be a reality for some people more than maybe for others being uh mm. something that their life depends on so in seminary, when we were supposed to figure out our social location, it was like intro systematics, you know, with, with Dr. Cohn. I, I, I really struggled with it um, because I'm from Dallas, born and raised, um, and my parents are from Asia, India, right? And But I'm not, and I didn't know how to fit myself in because it didn't seem to be, it's not, you know, it wasn't about the shade of brown I am. Like, that's not enough for social location to my mind. And But if I named all of my American identities about as immigrant or my class position, all these things, there was something to me that I, I wasn't quite getting to and I couldn't figure it out. So I wasn't a very good student in seminary. I figured it out later. It's not just <laughs> the physical realities of my location. It's the stories that are my story, mm. my parents' stories, um, the places that define my imagination. And I couldn't figure that out in my early 20s because the world didn't talk about me in that way, someone like me in that way, right? Where you start in America is... is how our liberation movements talk about us or talked about us. And so part of my social location, I think part of why I see what I see in the text is the stories that I was raised on, whether they're true or not, about what the church in India is like. And my parents just, grew, they happened to grow up in that generation right after the independence movement. And so that's a story um, with all its trauma, like it wasn't perfect, right? A troubled movement, a good movement, that the, the telling in India is that that a nonviolent movement overcame the largest empire on the planet at the time, right? And that's a mythic kind of David and Goliath level story. Um, and this was a generation of people then deciding what their India would be like, you know. And so their theology reflected that, their Bible study, their um, how they thought about what the church was, who young people thought they were going to be. So you can imagine how they read Exodus mm. and how they read the Gospels without anyone having to tell them how to read those stories. Like they just read them. You can imagine what the priest taught, that that's how I read the Bible too. I read it as their child um, because that's how I grew up. We, we did evening prayer. And I couldn't figure out what, what people were talking about when they thought something was direct or prophetic. I literally couldn't see anything else in the text in front of me. But I, I think I am framed by my parents' history and the church of their history. And it's what I look for. It's, the, it's why I'm in the community I'm in right now. They they recognize that same part of the story and want to be a part of hmm. it. Right? They can imagine that, that the gospel has something to say about what their city should look like, who their neighbor is, and what their responsibilities are. Um, 
and I, I literally don't know another way to do it, frankly. And so I'm, I'm curious about how, what other people see, and I find it very interesting. Um, but for me, it's not an academic proposition. It's like when my heart meets that text, that's what I see. Hmm. We live, Shaniqua and I live in a kind of a schizophrenic state. We have, like the Episcopalians in South Dakota, the majority of them are Native American. But my congregation is 99% white. There are two Native Americans who go there and no other people of color right now. And they have a completely different narrative. Their narrative is, is, is bootstraps. And, and we did this all on our own. And, and, you know, we didn't take anything from anybody, you know, I mean, literally I've had people say, we didn't take the land from the native Americans. We bought it. And I'm saying to myself, yeah, but you bought it from people who took it from the native Americans. And, and so my challenge in my community uh, and our, you know, this actually Huron is the most diverse community in South Dakota, not saying a whole lot, but it is um, because we have a, about a third of our population are refugees and immigrants. And my congregation is very much, um, you know, prairie farm people who, you know, whose grandparents immigrated from Germany or Norway or Sweden or wherever. And, and there's a lot of resentment of pointing out to them that they are in a position of privilege and that every, you know, the land they live on was at one point, not their land not just because they hadn't bought it yet, but because it was occupied by other people who were then squished into a tiny little group of, of areas. And um, it, it's a real, it's a real challenge in, in my, in my congregation to get that across without saying what I really want to say because then <laughs> because then they'll shut down and they won't they won't engage at all so i have to kind of dance this weird line you know knowing in my head that really what i want to say is you guys are full of white privilege and you know you need to get over it but so that's my challenge and and looking at places in the gospel where that can be brought forward. And, and, and I remember somebody complained to me one time during a sermon, interrupted me. And, um, and they said, you know, you're always, you're always accusing us of things. You're so accusing. And I remember saying at the time, I said, I'm preaching the gospel. This is the gospel that we profess. And, you know, went over their heads, but that was right before that really bad time. <laughs> right after Standing Rock, I had gone up to Standing Rock and it was right after that, that all hell broke loose. So what suggestions, and we've shared a couple so far, the um, dovetail joint, and we've talked about people experiencing um, a lot of pain and grief this, this year, especially. What suggestions do you have for preaching any of these texts? I'm inclined to, um, I think of Winnie, what you shared about how deeply one of your parishioners was affected by it. And I'm inclined to say, you know, if you can't improve upon it, if you don't have anything to really add, then like, don't. <laughs> That's not preaching, right? That's sometimes how I feel of like, this, this gospel is so rich and there's so much and it's tied you know, if you have been in church or if you have been in a family that reads the Bible for, you know, your life or whatever, you have so much history attached to these stories and they are so central to the baptism and the faith that we profess and strive to live into that I've, I have a certain amount of trepidation or fear of even trying to say anything to expound upon the words that are already there. And there are so many words that are there on a Palm Passion Sunday, right? <laughs> it's that long, 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 long
um, that I almost think, gosh, you don't need my words so much as like maybe silence in between these different parts of the reading just to let it soak in or one kind of question or repeating one sentence. I mean, I, I really think sometimes people don't need my words so much as they just need to hear the gospel again. And so, you know, maybe there's a way to play with that, to, you know, do the, take out the sermon for one week or to, you know, do it a little bit differently and just let the story be what it already is that, you know, we, as preachers, there's so little that we need to sort of do to create an emotional response to this Sunday, right? You don't have to pull any tricks out of your hat. It's there. It's, it's the meat and the richness and the beauty and the pain. It's all just right there. That sounds like a good sermon right there. <laughs> Maybe the, the danger is um, making the story too small. That's the risk on preaching is just making it. Too, and it, it, it's the kind of day where it, it seems to me like you, you want to, usually in a sermon, you want to be evocative in some way, but the readings are, it's the kind of, to me, it's the kind of Sunday you could do a meditation or a poem or you know, something that is evocative. Like, you know, can, can you draw it out a little bit further? Or is there a way to have people enter the story, which is, it seems to me always what you're trying to do in a sermon, enter that story in a way that brings that story to them through to today you're here, like that you're like where this is, where this story illustrates or, or kind of interacts with your, with our lives. But I agree with you. I think it's a risky, a risky day in the pulpit. Um, you can take a huge emotional, a ser- basically a service that works um, and cause it to reflect. <laughs> <laughs> I actually do that on Good Friday. I, I have, I, since I've been here, I've never preached on Good Friday for that exact reason. I, I'm, I make people sit with it for, usually I only last five minutes, but I do make people sit with the, with the passion and with, with this cataclysmic story. But I didn't, I, I haven't been brave enough to do that for, for Palm Sunday and Good Friday. Two of the congregations that I help out at are, they both don't have priests regularly. So I just go there like once or twice a month. And they're very small. So sometimes I'll just like do an opening sort of sentence or, or four, like a paragraph, and then have a closing one set up. And I just have a question that I ask them. And that the goal of the question is to try and bring them into the story somehow. So it might be like, where does this story resonate for you? Or it might be like, when was a time when you felt like you were being persecuted? Or, you know, whatever. And then I have them sort of share their piece. And then I just kind of close it out. That might be one way that you could do that. When you were talking, Jasmine, I was thinking about what if we had people like, I don't know what it would be, but like write down a word that came to mind or something and they could put it on, like if you had a frontal or something, because they're going to strip the altar pretty soon anyway, they could come up and write, write, like maybe use butcher paper (laughs) with a grease pen and and they write like the word that stood out for them or something they thought of. And that was like their way. That kind of would be meditative too, I would think. This is, um, I don't know if this is actually allowed, but um, I was at a church that loved to, that was really great in exper- at experimenting. And they had moved the, the passion reading to the end of the service. So you did the, it was, it was awkward. Like it was awkward to get it right, but you would do the first part of the service, long procession all this stuff. And so then you could preach in that kind of in-between space. Mm. It was really, I really enjoyed it. I had to say, cause it, it was a way to, because there's always something about protest or action or the street and everyone knows what's coming. You just haven't gone there yet. And so, that was the preaching moment. And then you would, we'd go through the whole Eucharist in this, I mean, the, the room which are, was heavy with the anticipation, like everyone knew it was mm. coming. And then at the end they read or maybe they chanted it, but they did the passion and it was devastating. It was at the end. And then um, we would walk out in silence. And one of those years we had made these bamboo crosses with t-shirts on them and every t-shirt had the name of a child that had been killed with a gun in our state in the past year. And we had, and we might've had 75 or 85, but we, we didn't, we, we didn't have enough. And some of them had two names. You know, we didn't have enough for the number of, we, 
we didn't cover all the names, I guess is what I want to say. And we, so you just picked one up on your way out. Um, and I think they were singing something like, were you there when they mm. crucified my Lord and let us out. And we planted these things in the yards. We just like dug them into the ground. And it was this, this visible illustration for the rest of the week. But what I remember is there weren't a lot, I don't remember much about the service, right? There weren't a lot of words in the service, but that action at the end tied it all so tightly. Mm. It was powerful. Yeah, it sounds powerful. Ask your bishop if you're going to do something like that <laughs> <laughs> so you don't get people calling. <laughs> well, thank you so much for um, being a part of this. I really appreciate your time and sharing your wisdom and your stories with us. Thank you. Thank you, Shaniqua, for inviting us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for joining us. If you want to learn more about Beloved Community, visit episcopalchurch.org forward slash beloved hyphen community. Thanks to our guests, Jazzy, Winnie, and Jean. Thanks also to our production team, especially Chris and Asma. If you heard something that caught your heart today, please rate, review, and of course, share our podcast. Until next time, let your light shine. You're invited to join thousands of Episcopalians, neighbors, and friends this summer at the Love Always Revival at the KFC Yum Center in Louisville, Kentucky. On Saturday, June 22nd, get immersed in inspiring worship and community, deepen your love for God, kick off the 81st General Convention, and extend a warm welcome to folks discovering the Episcopal Church. The revival is free to attend, so bring your friends. If you're from a neighboring diocese, check in with your diocesan revival champion to find out about group travel options. You can find more information along with registration at iam.ec lovealways.